We're picking up back in our Second Timothy series. Mrs. Scott White loves that. Um, it is a little different than First Timothy, I promise you that. If I could, in some way, give some type of title or theme of Second Timothy, it would be of one of perseverance, particularly when the church or God's people are facing immense opposition or suffering. Uh, Paul is commending Timothy that you can't actually persevere in this world when one puts their trust in God. And that is kind of some of the themes that we will see throughout this series, but most particularly what we will see tonight in our passage in 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8. That's where I'm picking up. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Whether you're on your device or your physical copy, please meet me there at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Here's what the Bible says. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagelius and Hermonagis. May the Lord grant mercy to the household or of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. I want to tag this text in our exchange the, in the face of opposition. I want to preach from that thought. In the face of opposition. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and mercy towards us. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and we thank you for your spirit. And now, Lord, we ask for that spirit in the preaching of your word, that it would fall in fresh soil that it would change and convict hearts, and that you would help me to speak the truth and nothing but the truth. Lord, whatever is not of you, would it fall off now, and would you get all the glory? 
In Jesus' name, amen. It was the year 320 A.D. There they were stripped to nothing, covered in bruises and blood due to the constant whipping and beating by their own comrades. These 40 elite Roman and Christian soldiers had refused to bow and offer sacrifice to Emperor Licinius of Rome. There they were in the face of their opposition their own fellow soldiers and countrymen, refusing to renounce and deny their faith in the triune and living God of Christianity. It was on that cold and dry and wintry night in fourth century Rome where these men were relegated to spend the rest of their days on a frozen pond with their hands bound, teeth chattering, Knees knocking and extremities near, nearing frostbite. The soldiers continue in their defiance through singing and marching about God. The empire wanted their allegiance, but they would not give it. Governor Agricola, their commander, spoke of the disgrace and betrayal that would come upon this renowned legion of soldiers. The soldiers reply to grace the, to disgrace the name of our Lord Jesus Christ is more terrible still. Agricola would continue in his persuasion to get them to deny Jesus for just a moment. All they needed to do to ensure their rescue from the frozen tundra of northern Italy was to deny God for just a moment. But they marched and they sang. They marched and they sang some more all day and all night until one of the 40 could no longer endure their circumstance. He dropped to his knees, ran back to the land and died. One by one, each of those 40 soldiers marching and singing dropped dead. Oh, but those soldiers had an audience. It was the other soldiers on the side who was tasked with guarding these men that observed their faith that stood tall in the face of opposition. One of them saw the last man go down, and then something began to stir up inside of that soldier. A power came over him. The veil was torn from his eyes. He ran towards that frozen instrument of death, stripped his clothes, and began marching and singing about the God he had just heard about. When the sun rose, 40 new men had replaced those who had died in their place because they too couldn't help themselves after encountering this God. This is where we find ourselves when we come to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 18. Paul, so close to death that he can smell it, he can taste it, wasting away in a prison cell because he would not dare deny his Lord. Here he is, alone, deserted by his friends because of his chains. He is moments away from physical death, but his spiritual life is as vibrant as ever. And I would say that it is his faith in God that has kept him alive throughout the years of beatings and chains and shipwrecks and deadly opposition. When we come to the words of 2 Timothy chapter 1, we find yet another instance of one of God's people facing 
dangerous opposition. When you come to read and know the Bible, there is one particular thing that often stands out through, through redemptive history. What is revealed in the sacred scriptures about the Christian life is that if you are to be associated with God or to walk with God, you will surely have enemies in opposition of all kinds. That is a fact of the Christian life. It is undeniable that when you survey the terrain of scripture, you will continually encounter the people of God being victims of persecution, victims of marginalization, victims of death, not because of the clothes they wear or what linguistic they communicate with, not even due to their zip code or their occupation. No, God's people are opposed by the neighboring world because they are God's people. Allegiance to God, regardless of the era, means you will always be up against evil opposition. That's the angle I want to talk from. That's the message I want to preach, that this text is tailored to remind you and I that in the face of opposition, you must remember that your allegiance is to God above all things. And secondly, that you can trust in his power and grace, that it is sufficient for what's in front of you. That ought to have caused someone to say amen or shout. Amen. I know there is someone right now who remembers that one time when your back was up against the wall due to some opposition. God did not leave you stranded in the dark, but he revealed his power on your behalf. To say it another way, that might catch the rest of you. When the world plays offense against you, you need a defense of your own. His name is God. We pick up on the heels of Paul reminding Timothy of what he now possesses because of this relationship with his Lord. Timothy is no longer clothed in fear and timidness. God has given him a new set of apparel. He now wears a spirit of power and grace. You see, Timothy is no different than you and I. When we are faced with hard things, your tendency, my tendency, is to cut and run. When God asks too much of you, you turn like Jonah and run the opposite way. Because you know where God is leading you will be difficult. You know where you're headed is going to hurt. Oh yeah, you remember what God told Jonah to do. Yo, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them about myself. Yes, the same people that conquered and pillaged my own people is the very folk I want you to evangelize. There Jonah is, preaching to himself and saying to God, you got the wrong one. There's no way I'm doing what you're going to say, tell me to do. Jonah knew that if he uttered anything about God to these folks, that it would be it. His life would end. So Jonah just bounced, took a ferry to Tarshish and hit out, made his way over there, away from God. There was something afoot coming to young Timothy that Paul could sense. After all, it was because of the very gospel that Paul is writing about in this text that got himself jammed up by the law. Paul is spending his last moments on earth in jail because he refused to stop talking about Jesus. In other words, he didn't know how to stop preaching to a hostile world. And when the power of God comes over you, it's too good to keep for yourself. The world can't shame you because of your faith. 
You ignore the opinions of your friends and family who think you're wasting your time worshiping that old dead God. When the professors and the doctors and those extra educated folk say to you that your God is dead, you don't pay them no mind. You just keep moving, walking with your God. When your so-called friends abandon you because the God of the Bible doesn't match up to the current cultural narratives about religion and Christianity, you don't get shaken. You don't lose heart. When you stand up for things of God knowing it will cost you popularity and money or a job, God steps in and defends your cause. Paul stood when the world tried to make him sit. He refused to deny the Lord's testimony because God had given one, given him one of his own. Yeah, you, you, you know Paul's story. What we see in 2 Timothy is not the Paul we've always seen in the Bible. No, you remember when Paul was Saul. He went around extorting folk, persecuting them, arresting Christians, and laughing at their supposed risen Jesus. It was now Saul, now called Paul, who ordered the hit on Stephen in Acts chapter 7. That's the man penning these words. But then he was introduced to a power on that old, dusty Damascus road. Only divine power can turn an enemy into an ally. Only God can carry you when you can't. God had given Paul a new name, a new identity, and now he can't deny something that he knows to be true deep down in his soul. And what Paul tells Timothy is the same thing we need to hear today. Don't be ashamed of the gospel when it is time for you to stand or speak up and out about unjust governments, crooked politicians who co-opt God for selfish political gain, or folks who rob the dignity of their neighbor. Don't be ashamed of your faith because it could cost you political and financial and societal benefits and capital with others. Or when a friend or family member wants you to indulge in some extra illegal curricular activities. Oh no, don't look at me like I got two heads. You know what I'm talking about. They want you to take a little hit of this or a hit of that. Just, just have that fun night with that girl or God. Okay, I, I, I guess we're more sanctified than I guess because we can't relate to the, to the world's opposition that influences us and the people that we're around. Don't let those oppose to God to force you into being someone you're not. Don't stay silent or separate from your fellow brothers or sisters in Christ when they suffer because they have chosen to make much of Jesus when it wasn't popular. This is what you'll find when you look behind the curtain of verse 8. You see that the power of God does enable the people of God to proclaim a message of resistance, of good news, even when it hurts. God's power, it does produce in us a boldness, not embarrassment, empathy, not indifference. But I don't think some of you need Paul's testimony to know that. No, because you've got your own story. You know firsthand what it's like when God stepped up for you, when he was both defense and offense, playmaker and defender for your cause. 
Maybe it was that time the doctor said it was medically impossible, but God had made a way. Or when a wayward child or friend got swept up by the world, then God stepped in and snatched him or her up. Or the time Satan kept tempting you with that addiction and you saw no end in sight. You know what it's been like when you, you know what you have been up against and what it's been like in this world in those darkest and deepest and saddest hours. And if you're here this evening and you can't seem to remember a time when God has revealed himself to you on your behalf, then, then you ought to be lifting your hands. Praise ought to be coming from your mouth because clearly he's been working for you behind the scenes and you had no idea. Clearly, you're sitting in church right now with not, no problems in your circumstance because maybe God had moved them out of your way before you got to it. Just maybe God's power had already been working in your life. So you may be asking the question, I don't know what's going on in my life. I ought to be praising God because he's moved it out of my way. The gospel brings power to our suffering and it gives us the stuff to persevere through it. But where there's power, there is grace too. Paul maneuvers up the field in verse nine to show us that what comes along with the power of God. Here it is, verse nine, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Paul is reminding Timothy of what happened when God's power was revealed in his life. Timothy got saved and he had nothing to do with it. Oh yeah, when God shows up and intervenes in your life, he does so with the purpose to save you and give you a reason to live a holy life. And what is clear to me from verse nine is that God is not in the business of wasting your suffering or allowing your opposition to run rampant all over you. The fact that salvation is solely predicated on God, it means his grace, it's, it's his grace that will hold you together for his purpose. I don't know about you, but I like the sound of that because if salvation were up to me, I would never choose God. If my faith relied on my strength, I would be dead in the water. If suffering is synonymous with the Christian life, then it is impossible for me to make it on my own. But what Paul wants you to know is that God, if God calls you to himself, then he has to keep you through the end. Whether it is good or bad or ugly, you are his and he is yours. That's the promise when God steps into your reality and grabs you and changes your name, and changes your identity. Your faith is not predicated on you. I'm having too much fun now, preaching to myself. I, I, I want, I, I'm just expecting to hear something at some point, but I had a feeling I would need some help making that point more clear. There was a young boy from Atlanta, Georgia, who grew up with no father, just a single mother. The world, had told him he had no chance. He was destined to be in jail or dead, or so they said. That young boy didn't want nothing to do with God. 
In his mind, God was the opposition because of the life he had lived thus far. But then he found his way to a little town called Richmond, Kentucky. And it was there that the young man had lost his fight with God. He had tried all the things that the world had to offer. He had tried to live life on his own. He didn't know what he wanted to do in life before he met this man named Jesus. But God in his grace had saved that young boy from Atlanta, Georgia, and sent him on his way. Here I am now preaching to you because God has saved me so he could use me. He had called me to do something different with my life. The very God that I fought against is the same God I talk to kids about in this city who have their backs up against the wall, who, who has had a world tell them the same story it told me. I remember that fall in October of 2012, reading the word of God, and God snatched my reality right up from up under me and changed the trajectory of my life. That's what happens when grace meets an individual in the world. It changes you. It moves you. It saves you. And it doesn't go anywhere because God stays in it. Friends, if, we can, if, if God can save a wretch like me, then he can surely do the same for you. If he has a plan for my life, then he has a plan for your life. And when you begin to feel the pressure and weight of your foes in this life, in this world, the vices, the shame, the faithlessness, the attacks, remember your salvation, friends. Remember when you first saw and loved God for the first time. Because that's who's, that's who's on your side fighting for you. Oh, but it gets better. Yes, it does. It, it always gets better with God. Paul says to Timothy that that's not, all God, that's not all God did for you. God didn't just reveal his power and grace to us from up there in heaven. No, he came down here and revealed it on earth. Here it is in verse 10, in which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. God determined it wasn't enough for him to just demonstrate his power and grace when his people are up against opposition. He had to take it a step further. And, and yes, I'm glad he did. So he sent himself in the form of a man, his own son. As Paul would say earlier in his life, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He decided that you weren't going to suffer alone. He said, I'm going to suffer with you. And you know what else? Jesus had decided this before you were ever born. Before the world and you had been created, he had already made his mind up about you. That's the kind of God I want to be in relationship with. That's the kind of God that I want in my life fighting for me when I have no chance in the fight. It was power and grace that saved you before the ages began. There he is, that man Jesus, walking on the earth, talking on the earth, teaching and feeding folk on the earth, healing, praying, 
and crying for people on the earth. The Hebrew writer said it best that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by his word of his power. That's who dwelt among the people on earth. I don't know what philosophies and religions and narratives and teachings you may be listening to. I don't know what is coming across your news feed on your phone about the different things in the world that can grant you happiness in life. Mohammed can't claim what Jesus claims. Komet can't claim what Jesus claimed. Your Instagram and social media and all the other ideologies in the world can't claim what Jesus claimed. I don't know of any other God that would put on skin, step into my reality, and walk with me. But not only walk with me, die for me. That's religion. That's Christianity in its fullest. But then Jesus was beaten and he was mocked on earth. He was opposed on the earth because he declared himself to be God of the earth. His own testimony processed him to his own death. And Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, well know that it hated me before it hated you. Then he marched and marched on top of Calvary with that cross on his back. They lifted up the Son of Man on that old, rugged cross with nails in his wrists, nails in his feet. They pierced his side. They put a cast of crowns on his head. They mocked him and said, the King of the Jews. There he was hanging on that cross. There your sin was on that cross. Your shame on that cross. And it was up there where he took your fear and your shame. It was up there where he took your embarrassment and all your sin. And then he went down into the depths of hell and abolished death with all power in his hand. But then he got up. I said he got up and brought life and immortality to light. And it was in that moment where the stain of sin was no more. It was in that moment where you came out with white clothes on, beaming and shining because something had happened to you. And it was in that moment that death had been defeated. And it was there that death was swallowed up. Oh, death, where's your sting? Your opposition was defeated up when he resurrected. You ask, what is powerful enough to rid the world of its power? You want to know if grace can cover your mess? Just look at Jesus, church. Look at true power and grace on full display. <clears throat> I got to close my sermon now. I'm sweating, but I'm having fun. This has been good, but I do have one more thing to say. Let's look at verse 12 which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I know what it's like to wonder and question and doubt if Jesus really can do what he says he'll do. I get it. 
I know some of you are still questioning if Jesus really will show up when you need him the most. Maybe you need him right now. Well, what we see in verse 12 is a man who is certain about God. Oh, yeah. Don't read it too fast. We, sometimes we just skip over the important things. We miss the things in the margins. Paul's usage of the verbs know and believe are in the perfect tense, an indicative mood. Oh, that may not mean a whole lot to you, but it does mean a whole lot to me. Help me out, Jesus. When Paul writes in the perfect tense, it communicates that what occurred in the past has implications for the here and now. Here I am, I'm, I'm going somewhere. The past informs the present. That is to say, because God showed up on the cross back then, I know he'll show up in the here and now. That's, that, I don't know how to make it any more plainer. But then Paul uses the indicative mood, meaning he is not writing to Timothy out of imagination or what could be. No, he speaks in actuality, in reality. Friends, Paul can speak with such certainty about God's faithfulness in the midst of his suffering because his experience of Jesus isn't just real to him here. It's real to him here. I'm going somewhere. That's the meaning of the word no in verse 12. It conveys that Paul doesn't just believe God with his mind, but that Paul believes with his whole being deep in his heart that God will guard the deposit entrusted to him with all certainty. That the gift is promised that he will one day see Jesus face to face on the other side. It means that his suffering will not be wasted. It means that what God says he'll do, God will do. And before he does it, he'll give you what you need to get through it right now. I'm done now, but before I take my seat, I know the question brimming in your mind is how does a person become that certain? How do I walk away knowing that God is certain to do what he's told me he would do? Assurance on this side of heaven can be very fleeting. And when the enemy tries to trick you into thinking that God cannot do what he has promised, that's when you got to get up close and personal with God through his word. That's when you see a God who gave Abraham a son when Abraham was physically unable to his age. You see that it was God who freed his people from under the thumb of Pharaoh. It was God who split the Red Sea and walked, walked his people through the, through the sea, and the, and, the, and the sea fell on the Egyptians. It was salvation that God brought to those folks in Egypt. Without God, David could not have defeated that old Philistine giant. Who do you think saved the Jews of Esther's time from genocide? Not one time is the name God uttered in the book of Esther. But the whole thing has got God written all over it. It was God that kept Daniel alive in that lion's den. Nehemiah gave those exiles swords in one hand and a hammer in the other because they were taxed with rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. But they had to defend themselves from those who opposed God's work. But it was God that kept their enemies at bay. All I'm trying to say is that when you put your trust in the power of God and the grace of Jesus Christ, 
in the face of worldly and internal enemies, you will walk with the confidence and assurance that cannot be shaken. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. All things come together for those who love and trust in Christ Jesus. To God be the glory. And if you need more clarity, I dare you to spend some time with Jesus in the Bible and watch him show up in your life. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, we thank you for your word, that it would be a lamp unto our feet and balm to our soul, knowing that you will do what you say you'll do. Amen.